there. You're listening to the third of our five special episodes discussing emerging insights at the midway point of the Resilient Leadership Project. I'm Seth Schultz. On this episode, you'll hear some insights that relate to the theme leadership and the personal perspective. These have been distilled from our participants' reflections on how they've led their teams while grappling with the emotional and mental impact of the crisis. As always, I have Peter Willis on board to discuss this set of emerging insights. So Peter, moving on to the the next topic uh, or category, have you of, of insights over the last eight weeks? So where where are we going next? What's on your mind? We're going to the question, the more personal aspects of leadership and how these 12 individuals that I've been talking with have actually engaged with and shown up for some of the more difficult tasks of leadership. We've had conversations about the leadership in the in the early phases, and those have been interesting when the, you know, the wave was just breaking. But I particularly want to talk with you now about the, what I gleaned about the more complex difficulties of leading when, for example, people start dying in your organization. In other words, when this thing that we've gone and spent the first few days and weeks with high adrenaline getting ready to buffer ourselves against this crisis, well, it got through. And I'm remembering one of our chief resilience officers talking about the first staff member dying and how he, uh, he had to really steady the ship and say, look, we knew this would probably happen. And it is a terrible thing because this was a woman that we all knew and loved and so on. So you, you need to be vulnerable to the emotion of it. And at the same time, because as he said, look, this happened at a time when we had an extremely heavy work burden, and I couldn't allow people to panic. He said that was the risk, was that people would suddenly sort of lose focus on what they were as teams trying to do. And I thought that's an interesting balancing act internally for a leader is to be receptive to the human, because if you override that in yourself and say, yeah, yeah, okay, so people are dying, that creates a blockage in your communication with your people if they feel my boss is in a different universe to me because we on the ground are in real distress here because there's a lot of fear and a sense of grieving and so on. And then at the same time, someone's got to remember why we are working on this day after day. So not easy to, to do. No, it's, it's a whole other ballgame. The last time we were speaking, the kind of analogy of cresting wave and there's a difference between seeing the wave and, and it actually hitting. And it's interesting to the point you're making too about the CRO sharing a reflection of the first team member, I mean, that passed away. It's a whole nother level. And it's it's easy and and to be desensitized in a way to some of this and to react. So this all is happening externally and in the pandemic is threatening life and that, but it's also now threatening economic vitality and it's stressing school systems and it's stressing companies, you start to, you have to deal with all of this, but then you, you kind of can lose sight that it's for the primary reason that people are dying. And then you see all this, you also see this play out in the news. And where did it happen first? It will happen in hospitals and it happened to nurses and doctors who were taking care of people and they were dying. And you had the same issue that you just kind of made this, this panic, like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And, and how I'm a doctor and I have a responsibility to the public and to keep people alive. So I can't run away from this, but oh my gosh, that means I might die. I mean, that, whoa. And then these doctors were having to find alternative places to live because they didn't want to 
go to work every day and, and come home and expose their families. I mean, this is intense stuff. But again, from seat like you or I might have, or somebody who's a policymaker in a city, you understand this and you are working on stuff to help shore that up, whether it's through supply chains and or call centers. But it's different when your own staff start dying and to not be so profoundly rattled. And that happens to keep on the track and do the things that are critically important that you're doing because it's all connected. Yeah, that's, that's, that's next level stuff, Peter. And then in a, in a very interesting sort of inversion of this process, there's Adriana Campello in Salvador in Brazil. She's the chief resilience officer there. But she had had a, um, a sudden unexpected, it's always unexpected, a serious illness just in January. And I had to go into hospital and so on, and she's fine. But she came out of hospital just as all of this was breaking. And her team uh, stepped in and took over. And she was told, no, stay, get well enough before you come back. And I started my conversations with her in the same week that she came back into, not into the office, obviously, but working from home, but came back into her team. And the, the, it's so interesting that she was reflecting on having just encountered death herself. Yeah, up close and personal. Yeah. Up close and personal. She had because it was a very serious emergency. She found herself thinking, "Well, what really matters here?" And effectively, she went through in a very short couple of days. As uh, she returned into her team, she was hugely grateful for the way her team had looked after her responsibilities in her absence and stepped up. And she decided to, in all kinds of small ways, to change the way she ran her team and responded to what the city was asking of her department. And this, this little sort of mantra that she came up with, which is, what matters? On the basis of that, she seemed to me, and I sort of continued this conversation with her for the subsequent week or two, and it seemed really to be a genuine fundamental shift in how she was in her role that she was far more willing to let things go and to delegate, give things to people who had never done them before, but, you know, why not try now? And so on. Because she had had this sort of very personal experience of having to let go and trust that the medical people would take care of her. And uh, I just thought that was a very, I found it a very affecting story of a layer of you know, again, let's, it's, this, it's a hackneyed term, but a layer of leadership being revealed by personal confrontation with your own death. No, it's, I mean, it's so true and, and powerful to kind of have somebody who's just recently gone through that share those kind of insights. I, I remember similar issues dealing kind of with some major catastrophes that I was responsible for managing, you know, multiple organizations. And what happens is you can really, you really throw yourself into it. You become totally consumed. It's demanding. You kind of intentionally desensitize yourself to what's going on to your earlier, some of the earlier points that you were making. So you can stay focused and keep doing this while some of that kind of trauma and baggage, you know, builds up. But if you don't do that, you're not going to make it through. But at the same time, what, what's interesting is, and, and this is not, you know, a unique thing. This, this is a pretty consistent thing in, in kind of emergency response work. But, you know, I think it's, it provides an unhealthy outcome because, you know, it's kind of like a savior complex. I've got to save everybody. And what we've heard from other, inter, you know, conversation interviews you've been doing, Peter, is that times like this are incredible because of how buoyant the human spirit is and how incredible it is that people 
of all levels of experience or interaction step up. And that in moments like this, people come together, collaborate together, and it's, and it's remarkable and it happens. And we've heard from some of the, the folks you've been interviewing how binding it is in terms of teams and focus, some of the silver linings. But it's interesting to balance that, that tunnel vision. We've got to figure this out and keep everybody going. Well, at the same time, well, it's not, no, this is, this is impossible for one person to solve. We all need to solve this and how to open up, let go to do that. And that's not, it's just not an easy thing because they, they seem in complete conflict with each other, don't they? Yeah. You know, as you're saying that, Seth, it suddenly occurs to me that when you apply for, get accepted for, and then grow in the job of being a um, a civil servant in the city administration, say, or a corporate employee and maybe a manager, maybe a director, you, you get no training, I'm guessing, it'd be very unusual if you did, in um, crisis management or disaster management. If you are an emergency doctor or nurse, or if you are a firefighter or an emergency first responder and so on, you get all this training about how to cope with the emotional sort of blitzkrieg of what it's like to to be stepping into a disaster. All the people I'm talking to are civilians. They're people who are doing this job for nothing to do with pandemics. And then suddenly they are landed with, uh, you know, I go, we talked about this in an earlier conversation that um, Craig Kesson, at CRO in Cape Town, is charged with working out where all the bodies are going to be buried. And so he's become really deeply enmeshed in an expert in, uh, what do they call it? Fatalities management. Oof, what a term. Yeah, yeah. fatality management, my goodness. Yeah, and it just strikes me that because I hold this view, as you know, that a realistic assessment of the future for any corporation or any large city in the world now is that their future is going to be made up of crisis upon crisis upon crisis, all different kinds, that that is actually what will define their organizational life and their successes. How good are they at identifying, dealing with, moving through crises and allowing them to be transformed by crises? So I'm beginning to think now, in this conversation right here and now, that actually that ought to be part of both the recruitment uh, criteria, but also the the training and the on the job evolution of your skills is that there are going to be times when all the rules go out of the window and you're going to be required to do the sort of things firefighters are trained to do, et cetera. What that implies for MBAs, you want to be a CEO, you've got to go through this as well as that. No, I agree. I think there's something there. I mean, most organizations you know, have a very strong focus of, of team, of management. I also come from the consulting world and, and increasingly they go to a matrix type organization and approach. So it's less, there's still department departments and profit and, and loss centers, but increasingly most consulting companies work in a way that you can pull this person with this skill set and this geographical location and P&L center into another one based on a client or a potential opportunity. So it's, it's more fluid. So this, the, per, the kind of the construct of team, I think is, is continuing to evolve, but I, I think you're right. The ability to provide some more training and insight in terms of the crisis component of we're all in this together, what a sense of team is, because you could hit a button to your earlier comments and then your team needs to look radically different and do different things overnight. And that's, that's different. That's not necessarily a matrix approach to business or management that's just we need to trust each other 
we need to be honest with each other and we need to dramatically shift what we're doing really quickly. Yeah. But then I want to come back to something which you touched on just before I launched into that idea, which is around this this notion of letting go. And this was a if you imagine sort of the geological layers that I've been listening to as we've gone through these eight weeks. Be careful, I'm a geologist by training, Peter. Seriously, are you? Seth. <laughs> I love geology analogies. Let's go. I can't wait. <laughs> I want to come back as a geologist in my next life. So what there is a particular layer at which my interviewees, let's call them my participants in this project, started talking to me about realizing that they needed to let go. I suppose I've just shared with you Adriana and Salvador, but that was for a very specific sort of personal reason that she walked in in the early part of the pandemic, deciding she had to let go because that was the only way she felt she could sort of emotionally survive. And it worked really well. But uh, both Barbara Hunton at Siemens and, oh, Alex McBride, Chief Resilience Officer in Oakland, she'd been reporting a really a really difficult tussle between her, her city, where she was um, charged with setting up uh, testing sites, particularly for the poor and the disadvantaged in Oakland. And they weren't really supposed to be doing this because this is a, a county function and county has the money for it. They just happened to have raised some philanthropic money to do it. So they just got busy because the county wasn't on the job. Because the relationship with the county had been strained over history and you know difficult relationships and so on, there was one call when she was deeply frustrated with this and sort of banging her head against it. And then the following week, it was lovely because she said, I just realized that the word I would use, it was she was stroking their capability and their success. And she was completely changed her tone with them, with the county. But basically decided for herself that she was going to let go of any of the credit for these testing sites being set up and maintained. Oh, interesting. More than one way to let go. Yeah. So she had let go of the her ego attachment to this project, which she'd been initiating and so totally, she's a very committed kind of person, as all these CROs are, I'm finding. But for her, it was a real breakthrough. And I may be exaggerating a fraction here because I don't know how the story has evolved since. But my sense was that the county was just starting to eat out of her hand because she was saying, no, no, this is your, well done, guy. Gee, you're amazing. And so on. And uh, I just thought that was quite a masterful little switch. Yeah, and, and a lot of that is is necessary. There's a lot of back and forth in something that's this kind of top to bottom impacting everything, businesses, cities, governments. And I think the one danger, is you, you had mentioned it at one point, you know, I think it was Hane Pham talking about supply chains and what we can't or can't have commercialized or monetized in a time like this. But at the same time, I think one of the one of the problems and the dangers we're seeing is you know how, how things are getting politicized around this, which is equally dangerous. And if you get entrenched in your political perspective and using that as political warfare, that's not helping anyone. You know, what you need to let go of why and when in a situation like this. Such such a good point. On that point, the politicization, I'm happy to report. I'm just scanning my mind that I think all 12 organizations that I'm in contact with, they have avoided that either sort of internal politics or politics with key role players that could have gone wrong. They're doing really well. Uh, unfortunately, on our television screens with the evening news, we're seeing really some bad examples of politicization of a crisis. I'm glad you raised it because it's, um, I learned this during the 
Cape Town Drought Response Learning Initiative and the, the many interviews we did with people who had been involved in that. Right, right, which is the project, the idea for this really kind of germinated from. Kind of born, yeah. But the consistent message which came through was, in a crisis, ditch the party politics. They have no useful role to play. And I thought, that's such a simple rule? Yeah, but nobody tells you that. It's not, it's not stuck up on a wall anywhere as a sort of, you know, in case of emergency, break this. No, but it's something you've got to remember in terms of an inherent bias, in terms of a political persuasion, that that has just got to get ejected from your decision-making criteria. Um, so we've talked about some of the challenges, some of the insights, some of the opportunities. I guess from your perspective, from listening to all of this over the last eight weeks, Peter, is there any upside to this? And now maybe I've been asking particularly with regard to the people you're talking to, the individuals, in terms of the leadership and the stress that they're being put under. Is there any silver lining here for them? Have they even had the moment to be able to self-reflect? You see, that's the, the beauty of this process that we're doing. When I speak to them, I'm giving them that chance with my undivided attention for half an hour to reflect on stuff that they normally wouldn't in the process of meeting upon meeting and so on. <laughs> I'm thinking of two of your compatriots, as it happens. One is Alex McBride in Oakland. We started a, a meeting where she was absolutely exhausted. And she said, I'm absolutely exhausted, but this is the most fulfilling eight weeks of my entire life. She was really radiating a sense of self-worth and curiosity about what would happen next and so on. And the other one, Barbara Hampton, CEO of Siemens US, who I could tell from our very first conversation is a, a gifted leader. And she has really kind of settled into this role. Settled isn't the right word because she's constantly ranging around. But she, she literally talks about a sense of deep-seated joy because she is one of the many, 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 many people that she encounters in her organization and outside of it who want to contribute in this crisis. And she's got this fantastic opportunity to contribute and help others to contribute. What could be more joyful than that? So paradoxically, here are we fending off global disaster and joy is popping up through the cracks in the pavement, sidewalk, sorry. Yeah, no, I, I, I wouldn't have thought about it, but you're right. You know, it, it, part of a, a leader's job is to create unity, to, to create collaboration and a sense of purpose. Yeah, I can see how Barbara would feel like, oh my gosh, my, my team has never been so together. Anne Rosenberg at SAP uh, in Copenhagen. She got online to create this huge platform online in two weeks flat with her team. And she said, we have never felt so amazing as a team because this sense of flowing together along a very rapid river of possibility is exhilarating. Well, Peter, I can't imagine a better way to wrap this conversation up than on a rapid river of possibility. I absolutely love it. Thanks again so much, Peter, for doing this and, and giving those points of reflection in a time of chaos to these folks and for sharing all the insights with us. It's total pleasure. My pleasure entirely, Seth, and I look forward to the next one. Sounds good. Speak to you later. Thank you for listening to Peter and I as we discussed some of the emerging insights from the Resilient Leadership Project thus far. If you want to hear more insights and reflections from our midterm review, please listen to the other four episodes that are part of our special five-part series. You can find these episodes and a lot more around Emerging Insights on our website. Link in the episode notes below. 
On behalf of The Resilience Shift, this is Seth Schultz. See you soon.